Welcome, fans of New Mexico in Focus. This is Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. And today is Friday, March 20th, 2020. And this is an interesting week for us, as I'm sure it is for all of you. Unprecedented times, learning how to do things in a whole different set of ways. For us this week, the majority of the show was actually done virtually through a web app called Zoom. You've probably heard of it. Uh, the lying segments were all done that way. Uh, host Gene Grant also joined us that way as all as well. We're just trying to be extra responsible. Of course, on Wednesday, the governor issued new restrictions to try to enhance the social distance, distancing efforts going on across the state to battle the COVID-19 virus spread in New Mexico. And we wanted to model as good a behavior as possible. We, of course, do have employees here that are working to bring you the show each week, but we're trying to keep that to a minimum, and this was a great way to do that. So we appreciate your patience on this, especially on a podcast like this. You will definitely notice a difference in the audio. Uh, We'd love to hear your feedback on it. We're going to work to make it better each and every week, but we appreciate your patience right now as we muddle our way through this as well. We are committed to bringing you in-depth coverage of these issues and good information that can hopefully help you and your family make important decisions during these unusual times. And with that in mind, we wanted to kick off this week's show by looking at, uh, with the line panelists, just some of the local response to the COVID-19 outbreak here in New Mexico. We mentioned some of those restrictions the governor put in place this week. Testing is ongoing. Things are changing by the day, sometime by the hour, even by the minute. But we wanted to find out if we think that the um, state has got the right sort of tone set at this point, what sort of things they're considering, what sort of things we need to be considering. A big one there will, of course, be the economic hit on the state. The legislative session just ended, and the uh, COVID-19 concerns are really having an impact on the oil and gas, which, of course, fueled the record-breaking economy um, and budget surplus that we had this year. So there's going to be a lot to hash out there. And so we have a smaller line panel for you this week as well, but we've got host Gene Grant. You'll also hear Matt Grubbs in here, the senior producer for New Mexico in Focus, helping to kick things off from our studio and to keep everybody on time. Also joining Gene Grant virtually this week are Sophie Martin. She's a line regular, as well as Dan Foley, a line regular, and Eric Griego. So let's hear what they have to think about how the state is handling things so far. Hi, everyone. I am Matt Grubbs, a senior producer here for New Mexico in Focus. As we record this program, we're in day one of heightened restrictions on social interaction, as you can see. Uh, The governor made that announcement Wednesday as she revealed that New Mexico has had its first case of COVID-19 spread through the community. That means it's been passed to someone who had no known travel history or known contact with an infected person. The governor continued her aggressive response to the pandemic, ordering an end to all mass gatherings, telling restaurants, breweries, and bars to close, except for delivery and takeout, and shuttering places like malls, recreation centers, community centers, spas, and movie theaters, as the state tries to slow the spread of the novel coronavirus. The goal here, prevent the state's hospitals from becoming overwhelmed. 
So here is our virtual line to share their thoughts with us about the state's response to the COVID-19 outbreak in New Mexico. Our panel, of course, includes our host, Gene Grant. Gene, good to see you there. And, Thank you. Uh, Remotely? Yes, absolutely. Line regular and former New Mexico House Minority Whip Dan Foley, who is still able to do a fist pump virtually. He actually is in our building, but on a remote link here in Solidarity. Former state senator and a familiar face for us, Eric Griego. Eric, thanks for joining us. And another line regular, Sophie Martin, joins us from her ad hoc home studio. Hey, Sophie. Hi. All right, Gene, we're going to toss it over to you. Let's get into this. Thank you, Matt. And thank you all for doing this this way. We're trying to model for the community what it means to be socially distant from each other. I want to especially thank Eric Riego for driving this this morning. Thank you, Eric, very much. There's always a technological fix out there. And we're just going to do our best here. Let's start with our governor's uh, speech to the state yesterday. Dan, I want to start with you on this one. Um, I want to get all of your overall thoughts about this, but what did you hear from the governor that made you feel a little bit better about what we have going here? Or did you not feel good about what we've got going here? What was your reaction to the governor yesterday? Yeah, you know, I I think I think the uh, first thing that we have to we have to do and, you know, I try to be one of those people that practices what I preach, right? I mean, I think we need to stop all the partisanship. We need to stop finding reasons to dislike someone from the other party in these crises like this and say, you know, listen, she's a Democrat, I'm a Republican, she doesn't have the right answers. Look, I think based on the information she has, she's doing the right things. Um, I think she's taking aggressive action. I know people aren't happy. A lot of people aren't happy with it. But, you know, um, we'll never know if we did too much we'll definitely know if we didn't do enough. And so, listen, I think it's time that we stop trying to find reasons to disagree with everybody. It's times like this that, you know, we need to stop saying, look, I don't like this person. I don't think this person, you know, the partisanship needs to go. I think she's- Are you talking about anyone in particular, Dan? Are you talking about anyone that- All of us, everybody in general, it's time Mm -hmm. to start finding the fact, you know, the pe- people are, I think everybody's trying to do the best they can based on the information they have. Now, that doesn't mean we mm-hmm. agree with them. It doesn't mean we, you know, whether, whether people think, you know, we're doing too much, we're not doing enough. You know, there's people out there that are going to tell you, look, I can tell you in circles that I run around in, I mean, they think the governor's doing a horrible job. Oh, she's doing way too much. And I've just been saying all along, listen, she's going to do what she needs to do based on the information she's getting at the time. And in this situation, we don't have the, we don't have the, we're not fortunate to say, hey, listen, I'll get information and I'll dissect it for the next five hours and I'll make a decision. This thing is moving. The, you know, the things you have to do are moving so fast from, hey, we don't want groups of 50 people meeting to within a few hours, we drop it down to 10 people. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we just don't know what's going on. And so, I, look, I, I don't agree with all of the governor's policies. There's no doubt about that. Um, but I think she's handling this the best she can, trying to take care of things, trying to get answers out there to people. I think she's made uh, state government very responsive. I mean, I've, I've appreciated the emails, the ability for folks to get in touch with people. Uh, I think it's bringing a level of, of ease. At least uh, people are saying, look, at least we're ahead of the game compared to some other states. So I think all in all, I think she's done a, a good job. But I think, look, I think, you know, contrary to what others may think, look, I think I think the president is doing a decent job. I think everybody's doing a decent job based on the information they have, what they're trying to accomplish. It's easier to, in my opinion, to say, look, I'm going to focus on my city or the county than it is the state, which is easier to say I'm going to focus on what all 50 states have to do. So, I mm-hmm. mean, 
I just think this thing is such a a fast moving target. Uh, decisions that are ma- being made today by the time they get disseminated, you know, we're finding out it's not exactly what we should have done. I appreciate the fact that the governor has not escalated this to, you know, you know, martial law in 30 seconds. I mean, we seem to be taking a fairly pragmatic approach to uh, looking at, you know, listen, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. But she could have come right out yesterday and said, we're closing everything down. She didn't. She took a very pragmatic approach, I thought. You know, we're going to close malls, we're going to stop big gatherings, restaurants. I mean, most of the stuff that she was advocating, uh, a lot of these companies have been self-doing anyway. I mean, I don't know if you've walked into a Starbucks or any of the other places. I was surprised, though. I walked into a Blake's Lotter Burger the other day, and, you know, they're not seating all these people. But there was like 90 people in line trying to order their food. So I think there's still a process of, of trying to figure this out. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think Matt pointed something out when we were off camera. Uh, I think it was Matt or, or Gene or somebody that said, you know, our 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 grandparents were asked to, to fight a war. We're being asked to stay home and sit on a couch. So, I mean, I think we can make it through this. I think we're uh, we're going to be OK. And I think the governor and her team have done a decent job based on a very good job based on the information they have and the outcomes they're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Sophie, your reaction to this? I mean, the governor laid down the market emergency public health order goes into effect. Uh, Thursday today and through April 10th. And of course, this is like Dan mentioned, very fast moving. We're not quite sure where this is going to go as time goes on. But was she aggressive enough? Was she proactive enough? How, how did you, what was your sense of it? I think we won't really know until later. I mean, I think, you, you know, to sort of to Dan's mm-hmm. point, um, we will know if we didn't go far enough. Um, but this is a, as you guys have mentioned, this is a fast moving situation. I expect that we're gonna to continue to hear from the mayors of our communities, the, the governor, the courts, the chief justice at the Supreme Court, that, that all mm-hmm. of those leaders are gonna to continue to evaluate information as it comes through. What's challenging I think right now, and to, to Dan's point from before, I was, in a, I was in a Walgreens not too long ago and it was you know, line of people waiting for the pharmacist and, and you could see that about half the people in line had heard the six foot thing uh, about social distancing and the other half had not. Um, we mm-hmm. can't expect in a time like this that even with these very urgent messages coming from government, coming from media, coming from faith <laughs> leaders, um, that everybody is is actually hearing, processing, getting the message. Now, here's where it's going to become painfully apparent to people, even if they are not paying attention. Companies have started to lay folks off. Small businesses are laying folks off. Um, you know, people are are not going to have income uh, now and in the in the relatively near future, potentially for a longer period of time. And we've talked a lot, I think, you know, already about what's happening to restaurants and breweries and cafes and housekeepers and, and, you know, all of that. But it goes beyond that. I was talking with the owner of a moving company the other day, and he was telling me that he was going to probably have to lay people off, too. So so all of these very basic things that we think about you know, continuing to work, people are holding off. Furniture mm-hmm. companies, their sales are way down. Like we're, we're just not engaging um, in, the, in the sort of the commercial flow right now for, I, I think for very rational and normal reasons, but that's gonna hit individuals very, very hard. Mm-hmm. You know, Eric, uh, she was pretty tough on the federal government. She made great pains to talk about what she's not getting for PPEs, personal protective equipment, 
the state had pre-ordered gear and it's gotten 25% of it. Uh, the president will be and the vice president will be speaking with the governors today in a conference call. And we'll all sort of stand by and see what results from that. But from what you heard yesterday, she's clearly having to fight for her own state, a small state that has not had a big impact, but we never know. What was your sense of how she took on the federal government there? And, and is that helping in this situation as well? Well, I think we're, we're fortunate that um, we happen to have a governor who is a former health mm -hmm. secretary who is, you know, considered among her colleagues, certainly is a bit of an expert on health policy, but she's had to face uh, some of these issues at a, on a much smaller scale, but understands that what should be driving this is science and what should be driving this is the best, uh, the best knowledge we have in public health. And, you know, she's never questioned that. I mean, she's never pivoted to a political position. So I've been, um, you know, I've heard from colleagues all in the country that, you know, we have a governor who gets it. Um, and so, and, you know, I don't, if she was Republican and she was doing this, I would say the same thing. So I think this transcends ideology. I also don't agree with her on everything, but I think that she has demonstrated why this federalist system we sort of have is so important that um, mm -hmm. we hope that on certain issues like defense and foreign policy and, and pandemics, that you have a strong federal response that's organized and coordinated and has the resources and the ability to deal with it. But the backstop is governors who can really step in. And I think we're doing as well as any state uh, uh, and, and better than most in terms of our response. But I do think she was absolutely justified in expressing the frustration that I think a lot of folks have at this lackluster um, mm -hmm. response from the federal government to say that states, especially small, poor states like New Mexico, should somehow be in a position to find uh, their own ventilators and to, to figure out how to get some of the basic things we need into into the supply chain is just, it's not, um, it's not how things are supposed to work. If there's ever a time when all of us should agree that we need a strong, really, uh, a really, not just a strong leader. So it's just not just about the president. This is about a federal response in a time of crises in, a, in, in, uh, in our country to say, all right, we're going to, we're going to muster whatever resources we need to make sure that we deal with not just the, the, a vaccine. Um, there was a lot of talk today in the pre president's press conference about a vaccine, and I, and I hope that that you know uh, that there are some movements in the in the near term about that. But the more basic thing is what can we do to really help states through this in terms of their hospital capacity and the equipment capacity, and then you know personnel where those are going to be the limiting factors. And you know Sophie sent around this very sobering article about how from the New York Times, I think it was how, how soon New Mexico and many other states. Are going to be at capacity in terms of their 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 hospital uh, accommodations for folks who have serious versions of this illness, um, and um, if there's ever a time when we need a strong focused um, uh, strategy at the federal level, I mean, uh, we need it now. And I and I think she she's doing her job and she's fighting for the people of New Mexico. And I hope everybody's governor is as forthcoming and, and courageous to say, you know, this you can't leave this to the states. This has to be a, a mm -hmm. federal response. You know, Guys, it's real quickly, I just want to give you a quick time update. we got about three minutes left. Um, Sophie, your comment, um, but also state Republicans are already calling for a special session. We know we're going to have to pay for this somehow. Um, I think maybe the consensus is spend now and figure it out, but we are going to have to figure it out. So, uh, you know, one of the, to that point, one of the things that happened when the governor um, issued her 
determination that the state was in an emergency is that it did free up federal funds for the state. And so it's not just gonna sit on us. Um, but you know what I think is, is interesting uh, in the Washington Post this week, there was a column from uh, one of their libertarian columnists. They have a libertarian columnist and she said, you know, as libertarians, we typically don't wanna see government action. And, and we sort of acknowledge that there may be times that it is necessary this is one of those times. So, so even amongst very fiscally conservative uh, political actors, there is this growing sense um, that the money needs to be freed up, the government needs to be enabled to, to take strong action to protect the citizens and, and residents of our country. Mm -hmm. A couple of real quick ones. I know, Matt, if you have a time check, about two minutes, so my... You got it, yeah. Right there, okay. Uh, Eric, let me start with you on this and, and swing around the, the table uh, real quick here. Uh, undocumented folks in Spanish language, the governor said, very quote, quoting, do not be afraid of New Mexico for undocumented folks. Is that the right approach? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a public health crisis. It's, it, it's, it's a great learning opportunity for us. Like, you know, we're in this together. We're one community. It doesn't matter what you're what your, uh, your, your documentation status is or your party is, is this will by definition affect all of us if we don't band together. We can be transmitted to folks who, who serve us, who, who, uh, who work in our communities, who, who our kids go to school with. So, so uh, everybody needs to be uh, included in this and we have to think about how we're gonna communicate and make, make it uh, as accessible as possible, both the aid, but also the prevention. I think we need to be thinking about language issues and also in the Navajo Nation, you know, we have some new cases in the Navajo Nation, like what are we doing to get the word out there? So. Mm -hmm. Dan, real quick, uh, same question, reaching out to folks who might not be inclined to work with the government in certain ways. This is an extraordinary situation. Was the governor taking the right approach? They're talking to undocumented folks that way. The, the coronavirus is not an ethnically effective virus. Mm -hmm. right? It's not only affecting certain races of people. I mean, this is affecting everybody. I mean, it's not, you know, not as it just our undocumented deal. I, I don't know what we're doing with our homeless population. Right. I mean, we've mm -hmm. already talked about how how bad this is because they can't isolate themselves. And on my drive today, I mean, there's still, you know, large gatherings of homeless people that are that are I don't know what we're doing to help it, those individuals. And if we don't figure it out, um, that's the kind of stuff that's going to cause us a problem in the long run. And and look, I just you know, I think the governor's done a very good job. I commend her. I don't think it was the right move to take shots at the president, take shots at the feds. Um, that's what I'm referring to when I talk about the partisanship. Let's just get this thing going. Let's just get over. Look, there'll be no lack of time for us all to get together and talk about how much we don't like each other and how much we don't agree with each other. There'll be plenty mm -hmm. of time for that. Right now, we've got homeless individuals to deal with. We got rural populations to deal with. Look, there's people in this state. There's a, there's a large percentage of people in the state that if it's not on rabbit ear television, they don't know what's going on. They're not dialing internet they're not driving it yep. I mean, there's people i'm telling you right now there's people in new mexico today driving in the town for the first time in rural areas going what's going on and they're being told so you know we got to mm -hmm. figure this out and uh we got to work together to get it done sophie should we plan on just not having school the rest of this school year should folks be prepared for that eventuality 
Oh, I, I certainly think they should be prepared. And, and more and more, I'm hearing from educators that that's what they expect is um, okay. like Kansas, which has already at the time of taping made an announcement that that its students are not coming back until the fall. I, 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 th I think we can anticipate. I mean, I'm also hearing from universities around the region that that their expectation is that they may not be back until the fall as well. I, I, th I think parents, unfortunately, students need to be prepared for that possibility. Mm -hmm. Matt, take it away if you need to. Absolutely. We're out of time, guys. Thanks. Uh, coming up, we're mm -hmm. going to talk to a couple of UNM psychiatrists about how to deal with uh, what's going on in uh, our society. Social distancing is definitely the phrase of the hour, the day, the week, soon to be the month. This is, of course, refers to keeping a much of a distance as possible between you and other people to keep the spread of coronavirus, COVID-19, down to a minimum. You probably heard a lot about flattening the curve. This is really about, we know that more and more cases are going to be uh, found each and every day in New Mexico. The goal is to spread that out as much as possible so that the healthcare system can stay in front of identifying, diagnosing, and treating folks here in New Mexico. And social distancing has been proven along with hand washing. Don't want to forget the hand washing. Make sure early, often, always you're washing your hands. But these are the strategies to keep the spread of COVID-19 down. But it creates a whole bunch of other problems. Isolation, anxiety, all these things can be really hard on a person's mental health. And we were lucky to be joined by two psychiatrists this week from UNM, uh, Health Sciences Center, to talk about how you can create uh, routines in your household, things you can do to stimulate your brain, to keep your positive uh, mental outlook going, and just to really help you get through the next few weeks as we spend a lot more time in our homes away from the outside world. Isolation, quarantine, social distancing, these are terms we don't normally use, but they're on the tip of everyone's tongue now. The prospect of an extended period at home alone can be daunting. Not just boredom, but real anxiety is something a lot of us have to deal with every day. We wanted some help and some advice. NMIF senior producer Matt Grubbs asked two psychiatrists from the University of New Mexico's Health Sciences Center to talk about what to expect and how to stay healthy while staying at home. We have an appointment that I think a lot of people would like to have. We have two psychiatrists from the University of New Mexico. Dr. Caroline Bonham um, is an adult psychiatrist who uh, teaches and works at the University of New Mexico. And Dr. Amy Rouse um, is a child and adolescent psychiatrist. Excuse me, I told you I was going to do that. <laughs> uh, but you also teach at, at the university. Um, let's start with the uncertainty of these times. Um, uncertainty, lack of control. I am certain that that can cause anxiety. Are you seeing that right now? Yeah, we do know that uncertainty and, like, like you say, a lack of control can increase distress, so it can contribute to anxiety and depression. We also know that there's a lot of proactive steps that we can take to, to help have a little bit of control in our life and then also to reduce the anxiety that we're feeling. Uh, what are some of those steps? A lot of it is actually really thinking about the structure of our lives, too. As things are rapidly changing, it's really helpful to have routine and structure. Things like getting outside, getting some fresh air, getting exercise, sort of planning your day and quickly making, coming up with some new routines. 
Uh, yeah, that's certainly something, Amy. Um, you know, for adults, that's going to work. For kids, um, it's going to school. Uh, as I think to um, Instagram, uh, when, I, when I looked at it the first thing today, one of the things I saw was a post from a friend who's a mom. Um, it was a, a schedule, um, something to do exactly what Dr. Bonham was talking about, um, creating that sort of sense of certainty. How do kids do with that? So we know that kids are very sensitive to changes in routine, and this is, of course, a huge change for our kids here that are not, no longer in school. Uh, so I love the idea, of, like you're saying, of a mom creating a schedule, um, letting kids know what to expect for the day while they're not in school with that extra structure, because uh, we can create that for ourselves, like Dr. Bonham was saying. Um, and then we have the choice to, uh, maybe with consultation with our family members, House, roommates, whoever it is, to change the routine and do something different. But once it's in place, then you have the liberty to kind of play with it. And that's a way to set up some more certainty in your life. Um, increasingly, we are all being asked uh, to stay home as mm -hmm. much as possible. That's going to be a closer interaction with family members than, than most of us have um, in our normal week. Uh, how do we deal with the communication issues that are going to arise, do you think? We also know that um, that, I, that in any way, when we when we're having distress and when there's been kind of worldwide changes, that connecting to others is really important and really protective. So being kind to others, service to others, taking care of others actually really helps our own emotional health. So looking at these opportunities to be again connecting to both your family that you're in the house with, perhaps, but also reaching out um, by telephone or text to neighbors and people that you regularly have contact who may be by themselves. Uh, this will be a new practice, I think, for a lot of people. Uh, how do you just make those inroads? Is it as mm -hmm. simple as just a text or a call saying, how, you're, how are you doing? Those are huge. Those are huge. And I know I've personally had people reach out to me and sort of, you know, said, hey, how, how are you doing? Just a really couple of times. And it, may, it makes you feel better. Sure. Uh, Dr. Ross, how do we explain this to our kids? Um, or our nieces, nephews, uh, how do we tell them what's happening? So I think you want to first follow the kid's lead. Uh, as parents, uh, you know your kid the best, and you know what their behaviors and uh, signs mean for them. Um, so some kids will be ready and wanting to talk about it more than others. And of course, you're not going to say the same thing to your three-year-old that you would to your 13-year-old. Uh, so really tailoring it to the age of the kid, their developmental level, uh, and what they want. Uh, can you give me an example? If a, if a child is sort of being standoffish or doesn't understand, hey, this is spring break, um, <laughs> you know, I was supposed to be, you know, somewhere else, uh, how, do you, how do you broach that and explain to them how serious this is? Sure. So you want to create an open environment and letting kids know, letting teens know that it's okay to be upset. It's also okay to be a little angry and disappointed that you're not on the spring break that you wanted. It is a big change, and I think it's important for parents to acknowledge that. Uh, and um, if they are, you know, you're seeing younger kids, might you might see more of a behavior change than uh, them being able to verbalize the emotions that they're having. Uh, so so again, it's asking questions, um, but really don't harp on it if it seems like your kid's just not wanting to talk about it. So give them the space and then back off. 
Uh, those nonverbal uh, cues, I would imagine, are very important. Yes. To being able to pick up on them. and, and um, it, Does this look like tantrums? Does it look like um, uh, crying? What is that? How does it manifest itself? So that could, well, again, be different based on how old the kid is. And it wouldn't be entirely uncommon to see some regression. Um, so see some kids um, acting like they did maybe a year or two ago uh, because this is a time of change and uncertainty. Uh, and so, again, you're, as a parent, you get to know what to expect from your kid. Uh, and being tuned into the, the change, I think, is really important. As a mother, I have three teenagers, and what I found helpful um, was talking with each one of them individually. They all reacted very, very differently as they're different people. And I asked each one of them, you know, on a scale from zero to 10, how worried are you about this? And they gave me very, very different answers. And so just like Dr. Rouse is saying, I was able to then to tailor the conversation to kind of where they were and what was going through their mind. And, and asking them individually how worried they were. Mm -hmm. That's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but it was productive for you. It was very helpful. Um, my, my son, and he gave me permission to share, was zero out of 10, had no worries. And so I was able to talk about why I was taking it seriously and have a different conversation from my daughter who had more worries. And then we talked about ways to, um, to help her with those worries. Um, New Mexico has a lot of families that are very tight-knit um, intergenerationally. So why can't I see uh, grandma and grandpa? Right. I'm certain is a question that many will get. Any thoughts about uh, broaching that that subject sure so I think giving the facts and being as honest as possible uh, you don't want you want to reassure but you don't want to promise something that's uh, that you can't keep and in this time where things are changing rapidly uh, it, it might be difficult to um, give the, to want to give those promises. Again, sticking to the facts and using uh, reputable sources online, there's a lot of information from the CDC that's you know, written in accessible terms that you, you might use with your kids. Um, but again, just being as honest as possible, even though it's hard. We all have phones, computers, pads, tablets, all those things. Information is incredibly uh, accessible. And that can be scary. There can be an overload. Do you have any advice on how to manage the flow of that information and the desire to know with what's going on with all of a sudden realizing, oh, man, I've been listening to the news for three hours now? Right. And as you're describing, it's a really delicate balance because we know actually having enough information can actually help with some of that anxiety and worry, really knowing what's going on and what's reality-based, um, whereas too much information can feed that, those worries. <laughs> So a lot of the strategies we recommend to is sometimes noticing yourself, noticing, am I feeling worse after listening to the news? Or, I'm feel, or am I feeling more reassured? And then moderating accordingly. So if you're feeling worse, maybe cutting back to checking the news once or twice a day. Um, whereas if it's helping you feel better, that's a good cue. We also really recommend going to some, you know, some well-validated sites, the New Mexico Department of Health has a wonderful site about local information, what's what's happening in our state, um, as well as the CDC and the WHO. Uh, if the anxiety is building for people and they're feeling like, oh, I can't eat this meal because it's part of my stockpile or something like that, how do people manage that? What are, what are some good methods for, for dealing with that anxiety? I think it turns back to uh, 
thinking about the things that you can control. And uh, so making sure that you're eating the way you want, um, sleeping, keeping up with all of those daily habits uh, to make sure that, um, you know, it's, it is very tempting to go through your snack stock, stockpile. Uh, I know that I bought some candy for me and my fiance as a treat and it was all got of the first day. <laughs> so again, know yourself and um, know that it's okay to, you're not going to do it perfectly every time and do exactly what you want. There might be some over snacking um, and that there are some things that you can decide to do differently. One of the things that we've seen um, is this idea of um, isolation, quarantine, uh, it, it, there are different terms for different levels. In San Francisco, uh, we see people are allowed to go out, walk the dog, take a walk, that sort of thing. Uh, maybe different than what we've seen from Italy where they're impromptu balcony concerts, which, you know, they have a lot of tambourines and accordions <laughs> in Italy, that. don't they? Um, but uh, can, can people... Do you encourage them to get outside, even if they're fearful of the spread of this virus? I mean, it, there are guidelines for how close we get right. to each other, as we're seeing here. But and again, you know, again, I would I would always defer to the New Mexico Department of Health about what what we're recommending as a state. But what's nice about New Mexico um, is that we have a lot of open space. We have a lot of rural areas where we can go outside, get sunlight, be outside without without being in contact with with folks. We're, we live in a beautiful state too, so all of those are good, healthy activities right now. And this can be something as simple as uh, asking your kids to, to play outside, um, you know, for their mental health, I'm sure, as well as, as a parent's. Certainly, and if there's pets, uh, getting your kids to take the pets outside. Um, there's actually a lot of ways that we can connect to nature right now, and that's good for our mental health as well. Okay. What about um, as we look at the economy? Uh, we get, again, we go back to the flow of news. We all want to know what's happening. Um, but there's going to be some tough news coming in these in these weeks. We're going to see businesses close um, mm -hmm. indefinitely, some permanently. Uh, we think about family members, um, ourselves, uh, as we deal with economic uncertainty. Most Americans don't have a stash that they can live on for very long. How do you deal with that anxiety? And these are really real issues, and we do know that lack of access to, to money, to housing, to food, absolutely contribute to anxiety and depression and we don't want to minimize those um, and again I think that that bit about generosity and service to others and connecting to others as much as possible that kind of coming together as a community to help each other is really important in our own well-being and then taking care of those that are around us and also being able to ask for help if we need it. Uh, so asking for help from neighbors, loved ones, or there are uh, crisis access lines that are available. Um, the New Mexico crisis access line NMCAL um, is an option if you are feeling like the anxiety or depression is, or stress is just becoming overwhelming. Uh, we can see impromptu sort of social networks forming around these sorts of things and the idea of asking for help. Um, in the times that I've done it, I recall it being very freeing, you know, of saying like, okay, I just need a second. I need, I need help. Um, do we do that enough? We probably don't. And again, reminding you know, yourself that asking for help is good and then also giving help is really good too. So when you ask somebody for help, you're giving them the opportunity to reach out and, and to be generous. Is there something 
to, um, you know, if you have kids at home um, or just a partner or spouse, saying, hey, let's see what we can do for other other folks, um, kind of forming that that team, the quarantine, and, <laughs> um, and, and kind of seeing if you can help someone. Yeah, and I think remembering that uh, what we're doing, social, social isolation, is for others, that uh, that is to keep our society as a whole safe, keep our most vulnerable people healthy. Uh, and so reminding yourself that some of these difficult things that you're already doing, uh, which don't cost money necessarily, just, just to remove yourself more from social contact, um, is actually something that you're doing altruistically. I would not blame someone if they were watching this and saying, this is ridiculous. I am just worried about me right now. Why should I be giving my money away? Why should I be donating to a food bank? And absolutely, everyone is in a different situation. And so absolutely keep yourself safe. If I, We do want to make sure that people do keep themselves safe and their families safe um, and knowing what's right for them at each time. Uh, How is this coming into practice for both of you as you see patients? Um, are they still coming into the clinic? Are you um, transitioning to telehealth? Where do we stand with that? And so it's a little bit of both. And so we do, we do, do we are, UNM, we are continuing in-person visits. And then we're also transitioning to, health, to telehealth. We have been doing telehealth um, for over a decade. And so that's been a very effective way of delivering mental health care to rural communities in our state. And New Mexico, again, has a lot of infrastructure and has um, made a lot of, actually has a lot of um, policies and um, kind of advances in, in telehealth compared to other states, too. So we're, we're actually in a good position to be able to do this. Been fairly aggressive, and it's important because we're a very rural state. Mm-hmm. Certainly, and it's uh, some of the issues that are coming up for people. Again, everyone is different, but anxiety uh, is definitely something that can be addressed uh, by telehealth. The um, the way that um, New Mexico is this this rural nature of it. Um, if you can't sort of walk next door, or uh, is it is it just basically a phone call, um, finding you know the person who who may need some checking in. Phone calls are huge, absolutely. Um, so absolutely, if you know, if reaching out to neighbors and friends, even if you don't walk next door, giving a ring on the phone is is really important. Certainly. Um, well, I want to thank both of you for coming in and sharing time. You've given us some resources. Um, we'll put all those, uh, all those numbers and websites on our website so people can access it. Stay healthy. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Next up on the show is also another important conversation and an issue that is being affected by the COVID-19 outbreak and responses as well. That is the U.S. 2020 census count, which kicked off right in the middle of all of this. Of course, it's crucial that we get an accurate count to make sure we get all the federal dollars that we deserve to provide services to all of New Mexico residents. And a big part of that are our tribal and our folks on Indian country. And a lot of times, enumerators physically going door to door is the way that census count is done on tribes, pueblos, reservations in New Mexico. So we had some folks on to talk about how those efforts are going, how the COVID-19 outbreak is affecting that, and what um, these experts want folks in Indian country to know about the census, not only why it's important, but the process and why they need to not be worried about making sure they report themselves through the count. 
Last week, the U.S. Census Bureau began inviting households to complete the 2020 census form. That can happen online, by phone, or still by mail if you need to. Reaching New Mexico's 19 Pueblos, Navajo, and Apache tribes is critical for funding health care, housing, education, and more. Finding American Indians living in urban areas and those experiencing homelessness is vital, too. And that, effort, that effort is hindered by a deep lack of trust in the federal government. But tribal leaders and advocates have been hard at work for months. This week, correspondent Antonia Gonzalez sits down with members of New Mexico's Native American Census Coalition. Joining me now are Charlotte Little and Jamie Glochet. Welcome to New Mexico in Focus. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for having us. Uh, right now, the Native Census Coalition is doing a lot of work on tribal outreach, but first let's talk a little bit about COVID-19 and what kind of impacts that's having on census activities. Uh, Charlotte? COVID-19 has uh, changed uh, the way we are approaching reaching our communities, our tribal communities. We are working on reaching our households now uh, through other means, uh, shifting our tactics that we were going to use. Uh, such as face-to-face -face contacts at their door, uh, at their door uh, in tribal community, uh, in tribal communities, at their libraries, at their tribal offices, and instead now we're going to look at how we might do this better so that we can protect not only our community members but those who are actually going out with the intention of helping them. So, it's caused a real shift. Uh, Jamie, yeah, I. You know, none of us foresaw this coming, and um, we've done a lot of community engagement work, a lot of outreach work. We've established complete count committees in the tribal areas as well as in the urban spaces that was heavily reliant on making sure we do outreach and education in community. Um, but now we can no longer do that, so we're pivoting, moving back to like making sure our community has access and understanding for how to respond, um, what's in the questionnaire. And now more than ever, the census is actually easier to respond. Um, tribal lands this time around are still gonna be counted similar to how they were counted before where a census lister will go out and uh, drop off a questionnaire, but there's now no, no contact. They're just dropping off a questionnaire and it's up to the person to respond. So what are advocates like yourself doing to try to keep the momentum of the census, whether it's information or um, encouraging tribal citizens, tribal leaders to fill out the census form in mid of the coronavirus? Well, the tactics are changing. Uh, we're gonna rely a little more heavily on social media. Fortunately, uh, there are many tribes have actually um, developed social media sites for their community members. Not all of them for certain, but many of them have. Many of our tribal um, members, uh, our relatives use Facebook, for example, across the country. So we're keeping in touch in that way, um, utilizing those pe uh, that form of communication. Others uh, may not be as familiar with Twitter or with Instagram, but definitely those are being used as well. And we have a person, uh, Kim Baca, with uh, the uh, Native American Voters Alliance Education Pro Fund program that I work with. Uh, who is heading up our communications piece, and she has been instrumental in uh, providing assistance to tribes, to community-based organizations who may want additional information or tips and techniques about reaching um, Native people wherever they're at. And uh, Jamie, what about just the good old telephone, um, you know, before internet, before yeah, yes. social media, before 
um, that tribes already have limited mm -hmm. access, some of them to broadband. Um, right. So what, what are some of the talks regarding that? So that's another option that uh, folks can respond to the census through the telephone. Um, but a lot of the neat um, authentic organic things that are growing in our communities is people are writing op-eds about the importance of the census. So there's that representation. Uh, we've identified trusted messengers, uh, one of which is like Deb Holland, our congresswoman, um, to really implore and, and show the people why it's important because representation matters. Um, looking at radio, so local radios, I know Zuni has a local radio station, Navajo has a radio station, so making sure that we access those forms of media um, and newspapers. And then, so it's just about one, educating why it's important, but also to um, providing um, our community with pathways to access those things so that they can respond and continuing to keep that, I guess, that um, steady message despite everything that people are being challenged with right now. And uh, Charlotte, expand a little bit on why it's important. What is the messaging telling folks why they should fill out the census, why they should care, and if they know about it? Um, we hear from tribal leaders and government officials about funding and that the census numbers impact funding from critical service uh, services uh, that Native people need, like housing, education, healthcare. That's so right. what is some mm -hmm. of the messaging about why it's important? It is, uh, the messaging is highlighting the reasons, again, as you mentioned, why it's important to vote. So much of our services, our populations, the services we receive are dependent upon the, de the reports that are available, that become available. Those reports are used for the next 10 years. That's why it's so important. Having been a tribal administrator, I'm aware that our planning offices use this data as to along with the directors of those programs that you mentioned within the tribal communities to plan for uh, services and expansion of services with population growths. And so without that data, it's or with inaccurate data, if, it's, uh, if that occurs, it's a lot more difficult to actually receive the type of the level of funding that's needed to provide those services within the communities. And that can be applied as well to the urban communities because we have many relatives who are out in a, who are like ourselves are living in cities and uh, so those services don't stop there. Uh, Jamie anything to add to what Charlotte's saying? Yeah I would just add that the accuracy of the data is so critical. Um, the reason being is because if we do have an undercount and it is actually estimated that in New Mexico um, one person undercounted is about $3,700 per year. So you multiply that by 10, that's 37,000. And I've actually seen studies of upwards of more of $50,000 per 10 years. Um, so it's crucial, not only in our tribal communities who rely on this data, but also um, like cities, counties, um, hospital schools to rely on this data so that they can receive their grant money. Um, one thing that I had looked at with what specific programs affect Native people, you're looking at SNAP, Temporary Assistance um, for Needy Families. The federal Pell Grant is affected by census data. Housing, everything you said, everything touches our lives with census data, and I, I think that um, we, we're not completely aware of that at times, but it really is. Well, let's talk a little bit about fears and some of the work to dispel fears. Um, we know some of the challenges facing tribes here in New Mexico and across mm -hmm. the country are the ruralness, isolation, yeah. hard to reach areas, but also just some mistrust mm -hmm. um, generations dating back of the federal government. Uh, mm -hmm. Charlotte, do you wanna address that? Sure, 
I think uh, most of the tribal communities in New Mexico, the tribal nations, uh, look to their leadership and look to the people within their communities as those trusted messengers that Janie was, Jamie was mentioning earlier. And so utilizing the people from within the community doesn't mean just mean leadership. It means those individuals who are working within the tribe who know their community members, such as emergency responders, CHRs, our librarians, um, our health workers within the communities. And the wonderful thing is that uh, through this coalition that's established of all of the tribes in New Mexico, we're working with uh, complete count committees that have been established at each community that are usual, utilizing those people, including Head Start workers, because that's a very, um, young children are a very undercounted group uh, of individuals. Um, and so we're trying to pull those, all of them in so that we all work together on this project. So, and Jamie, to add to what Charlotte's saying about the, um, about working together as a coalition and part of dispelling some of those fears yeah. people might have is it's not just advocates like you, but it's a lot of other tribes, mm -hmm. uh, native organizations, mm -hmm. um, business partners. Talk a little bit about those partners. Okay. So in the Albuquerque area, we've worked with um, organizations like the National Indian Youth Council, the City of Albuquerque Office of Equity and Inclusion, um, First Nations Community Health Source, the Albuquerque Public Schools Indian Education uh, Department, um, NAVA EP. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's been a really neat, I think, uh, coalition building effort, not only within the urban space, but also within the state. Um, at multiple levels to engage stakeholders, leadership, to make sure that one, that they're aware, um, oh, all public council of governors as well, I forgot to mention them, to make sure that tribal leaders are aware, but the constituents, um, the tribal citizens are aware, to make sure that we catalyze this effort. And going back to your fear question, that is absolutely true. Like, we've had a very contentious relationship with the U.S. government, like, no doubt about that. But I think New Mexico is in a very unique position in which we are demonstrating um, how to uplift and empower those government-to-government -government relationships, um, even at the city level, because the city of Albuquerque has also recognized those. And talking about the city, um, there are 19 Pueblos in New Mexico, also Apache tribes, as mm -hmm. well as the Navajo Nation. And, but there's also American Indians from all over the country yeah. that live in cities, towns, um, also people who transit. Maybe they mm -hmm. work and live in Albuquerque, you know, during the week or go to school and then go back to their Pueblo or Navajo or Apache communities. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of urban Indians. Uh, Jamie, talk a little bit about the urban Indian outreach. Sure. So just based on the work that we've done, um, so just some interesting facts. Um, New Mexico ranks seventh in the nation with the highest native population. And I'm pulling this from all census data. 68% um, of us now live in urban areas. Um, the state of New Mexico actually has about 10.5% representation, and this is previous data. And Albuquerque ranks seventh in the nation with the highest percentage of um, native people. We also have around uh, over 400 tribes that are represented here, so we are definitely a hub city. As you know, people come here for trade and commerce and work and school, but also activities like uh, Gathering of Nations and come to SIPI and UNM. Um, and we've actually grown as a population in general by about 39% since 2000. So we're seeing, seeing these really interesting demographic shifts in our population. And by being able to do this work in urban spaces, um, we are actually able to make, I would say, the invisible visible, because a lot of the times 
native people aren't shown in data sets. So you'll see majority of other um, like demographics, you'll, you know, white, black, Hispanic, but you won't see native people. And oftentimes we are othered. We'll not even count it in that. So it's important that um, the urban conversation is, is, is brought to light as well. And I think another um, underlooked maybe or mm -hmm. overlooked, I don't know the right yeah. term, but is the homeless population. Um, we know that cities including Albuquerque, mm -hmm. Gallup, other border towns, mm -hmm. Farmington, Grants, um, oftentimes unsheltered native people, mm -hmm. um, you know, are, are, are part of the homeless populations. Can you add or touch a little bit on that? Yeah, yeah, that is a, a definitely um, a really disheartening um, statistic and, and challenge in this work. In the city of Albuquerque, we represent about 4.4% of the overpopulation, but within the homeless or unsheltered population, we actually represent 44%. Um, the census data is critical to that so that we can advocate for, for housing services, for SNAP, for TANF, um, for, for our folks that are unsheltered at this point. Um, so that's another thing with the census operations coming up. They've actually delayed their operations a little bit there, um, because of COVID-19. And it's been identified in an equity report that the homeless population is actually the mo one of the most vulnerable, not only with regard to the pandemic um, because of exposure, but also in being counted. And there's a lot of work being done right now. And even before um, a lot of these big census dates uh, started getting hit. Mm -hmm. um, and then the summer when people are being asked to, I guess the deadline for self-reporting to complete the census. By July, the end of, the Jul of July when that rolls around, Charlotte, mm -hmm. what's your hope for New Mexico tribal outreach for the census? That we're going to have more uh, people comfortable with filling out their census form online that they can fill it out or come call the numbers that are available when they receive their package. They'll have phone numbers that they can contact to ask questions. Within each community, they're also gonna have the opportunity to ask questions directly from those within their community on specific uh, uh, questions that might be a little bit tough. So we're looking forward to actually um, having more response than before uh, in, in 2010 to have them respond in 2020 in numbers that will exceed the 2010 uh, is our goal. And I think I'm confident that we're gonna be able to achieve that. Uh, the people who are in our communities are very committed to doing this. Um, given this circumstance or any other circumstances that might come along our way, and as natives, we're pretty adaptable. And so I feel pretty confident that we are gonna be able to to get this done. There will be some additional effort for sure to be taken with those who don't have access to Wi-Fi or may not have phones or are so rural that uh, we may make special accommodations for those individuals, but we'll be working with uh, each tribal leader and their nation. All right, and uh, Jamie, your final thought. Um, this is probably one of the biggest um, surveys of the decade. It takes 10 minutes, it's 10 questions. I did mine online in about nine with my family of five. Um, we had a 5% undercount yeah. in 2010, and we are actually one of the most undercounted um, groups of all racial ethnic groups. So I would really just um, press upon the community to show up for each other, to show up for our children, because these counts ensure that our children have access to valuable services 
and programs, um, as well as our elders. It's really important and that we show up for one another and uh, make sure that we make the invisible visible. Well, thank you both for sharing this information today. Thank you for being on our program. Thank you. Mm, thank you. Going to send it back to the line panel now, again, in virtual mode, so it will sound a little bit different. We had folks scattered in home and work offices uh, throughout the city for this today, and this is normally something we do for the web. It's called One More Thing. It's a chance for the line panelists to bring in a story from the news this week we just don't have time for in the show normally, but we put that on the website and on YouTube and Facebook, so we encourage you to follow that each and every week. This week we wanted to include it in the show and to bring some other things into the conversation other than COVID-19. A big one you're going to hear Dan Foley talk about uh, this week was also news that the state uh, wants um, the Yazzie Martinez case uh, removed. This, of course, it has to do with education and the constitutional obligation of the state to provide a quality education to all New Mexico residents, which they were found not to be doing. When Governor Michelle Luan Grisham took over, there was questions about whether or not she would appeal the court's decision on that. She did not. There's been a lot of work she's obviously done on education reform since taking office. She acknowledges there's a lot more to do, but she thinks that they are on the right track and that the courts no longer need to be involved. We will see how that plays out in recent um, weeks, or not recent weeks, but coming weeks. Uh, so be sure to pay attention for that one. Also some talk about... Uh, the ongoing efforts to create a new homeless shelter here in Albuquerque. So let's send it back to the line and Gene Grant. Welcome back to the line. Uh, usually before the show, we do a little warm up. We call one more thing, which is geared to our Facebook live folks, but we're doing a bit of a twist this week. Of course, everything you see is a bit of a twist from our usual format. So we're going to do it on air this week and using our boxes our folks that have come in with us, Sophie Martin, Eric, Mar Eric Grego, and Dan Foley. I'm going to start with Sophie Martin here. What's your one more thing this week? You know, it's been such a rough week, couple of weeks in terms of news and, and you know, everything is uh, COVID-19, coronavirus, et cetera. But one thing that leapt out at me as a, like a, just a lovely good piece of news from New Mexico was Gigi Hess of Lovington, New Mexico, making it onto The Voice as one of Kelly Clarkson's sort of protégés. This is, as far as I can tell, I don't really watch the show, I will admit, but as far as I can tell, this is the second New Mexican, at least in recent history. Of course, Chevelle Shepard, who went all the way, took, took the top prize for The Voice, mm -hmm. um, a New Mexican. But congratulations to Miss Hess singing, as, as let me just say, as a member of Generation X, she sang The Cure's love song. I was so excited. She's only 22. I'm sure she thinks it's an oldie, but uh, I was thrilled for her. So congratulations to her and to Lovington, New Mexico. Uh, she was raised correctly, knowing that tune. That's why. <laughs> Eric Griego, good to see you, by the way. Thanks for coming in, in finger quotes from your couch there. What's your one more thing this week? Well, I, um, this whole, if this crisis has taught us anything, is it sort of, we're kind of in this together. And I, I just wanted to express my own personal disappointment as a, as a young person and student and, and uh, uh, sometimes lecturer over there that uh, we couldn't figure out how to uh, work more closely with the city and the county in terms of a location for the homeless shelter and the, the decision not to, to offer that land. Um, I get it, it's a, it's a tough issue, but if, if we have learned anything from this, uh, this, this whole health crisis that we're in as a, as a community that we need to band together and, 
And I think it was a missed opportunity for UNM to really show that they are deeply vested in helping us solve these community problems. And uh, it's a very tough situation. I know we have to keep folks safe, but uh, I, I was really hoping that that uh, there would have been more of an effort uh, on the UNM leadership's part to, to say, you know, we're going to figure out how to make this work and keep our students and staff and faculty safe while doing right by this community. Because so uh, I'm, I'm hoping that things will still resolve themselves, but disappointed for sure. Did the city announce too quickly on that, in your opinion? It, it didn't seem like it was fully buttoned down from UNM's side of things. Well, it, it sure sounded like they had made a decision and that they were not going to go back. And, you know, it was an 11 to 1 decision from the, you know, the Public Safety Committee, uh, the committee that was sort of advising the leadership there. So it, it sure sounded like it was a fait accompli. And I think that the mayor and his folks just had to pivot. We have to get a we have to get a facility open. We have a, a big big crisis even before the virus. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so I, I I think hopefully they'll still be partnering. We need them obviously with the with the hospital and so on. They need to be partners with us in solving this homeless. There you go, Dan Foley. What do you think? What's your one more thing this week? What have you been seeing out there? I just want to say, whenever I'm alone with you, I feel like I am home again. So you know. Um, <laughs> You know, whenever I'm alone with you, you guys make me feel whole again. I so, feel like I need to point out that Dan is quoting The Cure. Oh, the, the song, oh. The song oh. that Gigi I has. That, I don't everybody to know that I'm a big fan of The Cure, shocker, believe it or not. And <laughs> did a great job. You know, I just want to touch on the Yazi lawsuit. Um, you know, we have the, the, the Yazi lawsuit that was brought uh, against the state of New Mexico under the Martinez administration, saying that we were not adequately... Uh, educating uh, uh, different different ethnicities, and, dis and there was a, a disparity between the education laws. So the governor has now asked that we be dismissed from the lawsuit, that they close it because after the last two legislative sessions, folks are coming back and saying, hey, wait a minute, you cannot, uh, just because you've done a few things doesn't mean you've solved everything. So it'll be interesting to see. Remember the judge that, dis that, that handed out a decision has since I believe passed away. And so there's another judge that's now looking at this. If you guys remember, I said early on when the governor was taking over, um, when she was being brought in, I, I didn't mean taking over, when she was being sworn in, that I think letting this thing go without uh, fighting the lawsuit was a bad move because it's allowing, I think, a huge policy shift from policy decisions being made by the elected legislative branch, the executive branch, to policy decisions being made by the courts. And if you look at their comments, now they're kind of saying that. I'm not sure if the horses aren't out of the barn now. You know, it's going to be hard, the old saying that, to say, hey, wait a minute, we think now that we want to wrangle this, this back in and have the legislature and the governor address it. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. This has wide ranging implications, especially as the budget starts to tighten, where you're going to have judges making decisions about how money is spent on education could be very damaging. Mm -hmm. There you go. Appreciate those thoughts, guys, for sure. Let me throw it to my colleague in the studio, Matt Grubbs. Hey, thanks, Gene. All right. Well, that's going to do it for mm -hmm. us for the line this week. Uh, Gene will be back in just a moment with some final thoughts. Our host, Gene Grant, will wrap up the show this week with some final thoughts, particularly around social media in this time of social distancing and, and home isolation and how we can use it to help support and build each other up. We know there are a lot of great efforts out there that folks are going through to help their community, help one another to find a need and to fill it. We want to hear about that in your circles. So reach out to us. You can do that on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, YouTube, any of those will work. You can also email us at the show at New Mexico in Focus at nmpbs 
www.ghostdoctor.org. We would love to hear what you're seeing and experiencing where you are at, as well as any questions, concerns you have about COVID-19, the ongoing response. We're going to be tracking, reporting on that in the coming days and weeks and want to get answers for you. So uh, with that, we hope you all stay safe, stay healthy, and we will see you guys next week or talk to you next week. You know, it's been incredibly heartwarming to see the kind of rallying that's been going on in New Mexico for each other during this COVID-19 situation, Uh, especially on social media. There's a real sense of wanting to help, offering to help. Let's take advantage of that. Let's really help each other out here. As consumers, let's keep buying and using those gift certificates, uh, taking out meals from restaurants when we can, and helping wherever we can. While we self-isolate, there are all kinds of you want things you want to do out there. I know it's getting kind of boring out there for some folks. Maybe if you have kids, go to pbs.org. All kinds of good things going on there. Let us know how you're faring on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you, too. And we want to thank you for tuning in this week. Thank you. We'll see you next week in Focus.